Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I am joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and we are back. This is the first episode of 2023. I hope you all had a very restful and enjoyable uh, holiday period here, and uh, we are back at it here it's uh uh right at the beginning here of uh 2023 and as we're taping this we have unfortunately just learned some tragic news of the passing of pele the uh, brazilian soccer legend uh three-time world cup winner and really one of the most accomplished and uh well-known athletes in the entire world yeah i was very uh sad to hear the news eric in the 70s i uh was fortunate to go to some Cosmos games, got to meet Pele then, uh, met him more recently with my daughter when she was playing soccer. What a wonderful person, uh, both in person and and on the field. You know, when you think about icons of our generation, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Pele is is right up there with those. And so uh, all the best to his family on this very difficult uh, day. Yeah, and, and you really sort of think about his impact and and the power of using sport as a as a powerful societal aggregator, as a force for good, uh, uh, an instrument to voice for humanitarian causes, what have you. That really was ahead of his time in a lot of respects, and a lot of the concepts that we talk about week in week out here on the podcast. Uh, these are things that uh, Pele was uh, laying tracks on decades ago. He, he really was a, a trailblazer in many ways, Eric, and maybe even more specific to the United States and the world of soccer. When he came over in the 70s, it really started the soccer revolution in the United States. And since yep. he's been here, obviously, we had Beckham come and potentially now we'll have Messi come at some point here in the future. But but Pelé was really the first and I think inspired a lot of young people to play the game of soccer, both boys and girls, and really will have a great impact in, in, in many ways. Well, as we begin uh, 2023 here, there are no shortage of uh, big happenings here, and we're actually going to break down a number of uh, uh, major news events that happened just before the arrival of Christmas that really are going to point the way towards how the uh, sports industry is going to sort of manifest and, and define itself particularly in these early days of 2023. Uh, so we're going to break down all of that. But first, we're going to have a conversation with David Palmer from Bernoulli Locke, who is uh involved with a, a really unique sale GP team and more broadly has uh, the firm has some really interesting concepts on fan engagement and team ownership and, and how some new models can look like going forward. So stay tuned for that conversation with David and then uh, Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week as we start 2023. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, David Palmer, founder of Bernoulli Locke, a United States-based entity focused on luxury, experiential hospitality, and Web3 member-based communities. The firm under Palmer's leadership recently introduced a fan-owned sale GP team that will be funded and operated by Decentralized Autonomous Organization, or DAO. The effort leveraging emerging Web3 and blockchain technologies represents a rare move within the global sports industry by operating a team through a DAO, in turn giving member owners voting rights on a wide range of operational and business strategy matters. 
The new team is looking to compete in the Global Sailing Series beginning in 2023. Prior to forming Bernoulli Lock, Palmer served as president and chief executive of Diamond Resorts International, a resort management timeshare membership company. Palmer also led its predecessor entity and has a wide range of experience in the hospitality and consumer subscription spaces. David, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate it. So I, I gave a little bit of an overview on your professional background there, sort of jumping off from that point. Uh, what was sort of the the core inspiration to found uh, Bernoulli Lock and then move into this DAO direction? Well, well, what we learned at Diamond Resorts was connecting really passionate in people. You know, we transformed vacation ownership around experiential travel, and we created a, a series of experiential events. We did about 2,000 or so a year that were focused on passion. So we had a sports vertical, we had a food vertical, entertainment vertical that created very interesting, engaged, multi-day mini vacations around people's passions. And we learned a lot in executing those across our 110 resorts in 14 countries. So we were able to be very, very close to how people connected with their passion. That passion could be something as simple as a light hike. It could be reading a book. It could be going to a sports uh, event. It could be, you know, going to a a dinner. Uh, We did a lot around sports. And that's one of the reasons why I started to look at sports and how sports and people engage with sports. Uh, We had a great relationship with Major League Baseball with the New York Yankees and the San Francisco Giants around spring training. We had Reggie Jackson with with the Yankees and Gaylord Perry with the San Francisco Giants, and we ran a series of really interesting, engaging fan uh, experiences around spring training where Reggie and Gaylord would bring 30 or 40 people at a time to spring training, go through batting practice, pitching practice, maybe see a spring training game. And we learned that people really like the deconstructed part of sports as well, right? Getting behind the scenes, seeing the sausages being made, understanding the inside aspects of the sport. And we uh, did a great job with, with MLB. We started, we branched it in with the NFL as well, with the Washington football team and did a little bit with the NBA. Um, but we found fans really like to engage across a spectrum. And that's one of the things that we, that we found now in sales GP is that there's really a spectrum of engagement that people seek and desire it isn't necessarily just the game aspect of the sport. It may be the data aspect of the sport. It may be the commercial aspect of the sport, how the brand engages with fans, how the brand engages with other brands. For example, you know, sports teams are a brand in the, of themselves, but they also present themselves as a commercial platform uh, where they engage with other brands uh, and very interesting collaborations around the fan experience. So we learned a lot. Um, at Diamond and decided to found Bernardo Locker around those same principles. How do we, how do we really connect passion and people in a very unique way um, and, and bring to life uh, some of the dreams that people have? Maybe digging a little bit deeper on the new firm. What are the key lines of business? What is the business model? How do you make money? Can you share a little bit of the nuts and bolts of that with the audience? Sure. Around passion and people, you have membership ultimately. And that's what we did at Diamond Resorts. We created a multi-hundred thousand person membership uh, platform. It's basically a subscription uh, model. Uh, so if you think about what we're doing at, at Sales GP and at other Bernoulli-like verticals, 
you know, at its core, there's a membership base that is connecting the people and the passion together. And that's an annual subscription type model. And the way that, that the way, the form of that for, for sale GP fan owned team, it's really kind of twofold. There's the traditional commercial aspects of, of sports team um, ownership where you have commercial rights revenue, media rights revenue, ticket merchandise rights revenue. Uh, in addition, we'll be bringing that subscription membership-based uh, revenue stream to, to the sports franchise. We'll be having an annual community membership uh, token that's sold uh, for a few hundred dollars or so. And then we'll have the monetization of you know, what I call the, uh, the sausage-making aspect, which is uh, engagement, fan engagement around the actual uh, making of the sport. So there's multiple revenue streams depending on the vertical uh, that we're in, but at its core, uh, membership subscription and and passion and fan engagement is really the core uh, revenue driver in the business. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, maybe if you could briefly describe exactly what a DAO is and how it's going to work, particularly in your case here. Yeah, so in its purest sense, a, 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 ton of, a decentralized autonomous organization is a is a collection of of individuals with a common purpose and they share that purpose on usually some, some blockchain. In this case, we're using, we're building ours on the near protocol and that allows uh, transparency in action and focus. And there's usually a voting mechanism that's, that's embedded in a constitution that allows that membership, that community to state its purpose, to vote, and to record that vote publicly with transparency on executing against that business purpose or the mission or the charity. You know, there's lots of different ways you can execute a DAO. In our case, the challenge has been how do you take a true decentralized concept like that, you know, a multi-thousand person a community, and have it execute against a high-performance sports mission, in this case, to put a competitive sports racing team on the water. So we can't allow 2000 people to make every decision, every sporting decision, right? Uh, you'd have chaos, but you know, what, what skipper is going to be in the boat, what, what grinders going to be in the boat. Uh, and, and any true sports, high performance sports organization, you need to have usually a sporting director, sporting leader, you know, in baseball, it's the manager and football, it's the, it's the coach. So we will have a, a sporting director here that the Dow community uh, votes on the management. And so Dow will have input into who is actually managing. Um, and then they'll basically say the day-to-day sporting operation will be then given to that sporting director. Um, and then other key elements outside of that, uh, distribution of cash, the, all the, the attributes of ownership are really given to that, that community. And that community has the opportunity to put any proposal up to vote. Now, the manager can, can either accept or decline that, but let's say that they come up with a very interesting and innovative idea about a new way to exploit the commercial rights. We want the community to be able to put that forth and have the manager then, then have to have the, the discipline to review that and to either move forward with that or not. So it's a very interesting form of, of ownership and fan engagement at a level never seen before in sports, but still allowing for the key attributes of excellent sports performance, which is you have to have a sporting director um, helping manage the day-to-day sporting operations of the team 
uh, still stand in place. Taking a half a step back, how did you put that community together in the first place? How do you find the, those right people who have that passion who want to participate in this? Yeah, so we're just starting that process right now, you know, and what we have found in, but whether it's sailing or any type of sport, there's, you already, you always have your inherent uh, base of fans and it's relatively easy to, to, to engage with those because the sporting leagues have very, very good access through social channels and email channels to reach that community. And there's an awful lot of media. I mean, ultimately sales GP is a media property. Um, that's, you know, broadcast in over 180 countries, you know, next year we'll be in 14 different, um, race locations. So it's a global media property that, uh, understands how to get its, its product, uh, broadcast. So reaching the, the, what I call the traditional fan community is, is not a difficult task, but then peeling that back a little bit, there's again, these sub layers of fan, of fandom that occur. You have the data fans that are out there. Um, the good news, because we're we're partnering with with Near Protocol on this, you know, Near has has its its community. That if you look at even their Twitter account, they have eight hundred thousand people on Twitter. So we're able to reach the 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 data side and the the tech side of fandom here relatively efficiently. Um, but you know, part of it is is direct marketing um, discipline that we learned, you know, back in our our subscription consumer services. We know how to reach. We know how to message to people that we think would be new types of fans. You know, this is ultimately a Echo Racing product. When we say Echo Racing product, it's it's a stadium racing product that is powered by nature. It's a wind. It's a wind powered series that is with its goal of being carbon negative. Right now, it's it's near carbon neutral. So there's another there's another fandom element of the sport about environmental impact uh, that we're, we're reaching out also. So we have a multi-pronged strategy of reaching that community and building that community around those, those verticals, you know, within fandom. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't really necessarily realize around sport in general is that you really have sport appealing to a lot of different types of individuals. It isn't just, if you look about baseball, you know, there's, there's a whole, mathematical statistical side of baseball that really appeals to, to, to folks at a stats level that is very unique and and but a very impassioned group of people we have the same thing here in sales gp and it's a it's a unique platform in the fact that when larry ellison who's the founder and the and the financial backing of of sales gp and and russell coots put it together they made a very interesting and critical decision about how they were going to have the sport management data standpoint. There's an open data platform. So all of the teams have access to all the other teams' data. And so unlike Formula One, for example, which is a closed data league, each team's data is managed by the, the team and not shared with anybody else. It creates a, a very dynamic platform and it gives you a sense of just the, the amount of data that's being managed by CLGP. So for, there's nine currently there's nine boats in the fleet, and those nine boats generate 10 million uh, lines of data per second during a race. And there's 48 billion data requests per race event weekend, uh, and all that data is is available. It's processed. There's 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 lots of different pieces of software that allow the teams to then analyze that data, but 
Team Australia can look at what Team USA is doing in a particular move, at a jibe or attack, or what the position of their rudder is, um, or how they're trimming their their wing. Um, and they can they can view that data uh, both uh, in real time and, and and after the race. So it creates a very interesting format for both competitive sport, but also opening up a very unique fan experience. So we can create private data communication channels with our, with our, with our membership, not only with our team, but we can actually look at what's happening with other teams in, in, in real time. And so that type of engagement, you know, reaching out and saying to the fans out there, the, the tech fans, the data fans in the world, this is an extraordinary platform that we're going to give you access to is something that really excites me because it's, it's expanding what fandom really looks and feels like both from a product standpoint what we can actually bring to the, to the fans, but also the types of individuals who would be interested in in participating in this in this community. Um, that's just what I call the typical sale race fan, but it's somebody who really enjoys. Well, how can data actually improve overall sporting performance? You mentioned baseball before, and, and these are obviously still early days in putting together what you're doing here. But uh, looking ahead, what is your sense of uh, how this type of ownership structure might manifest itself in traditional stick and ball sports like baseball, American football, basketball, what have you? Is this something that you see rippling elsewhere as a potential ownership model? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, we're, I'm doing this, um, you know, I come from. What I learned most about sport was really with baseball, um, with diamond, and and how fans engage with that sport, uh, and then started branching into working with NBA and NFL, and it clearly has. We can export the same exact structure to those, to those sports, and I think it works very very well with soccer, uh, motorsports, um, where you have a combination of passion, you have a combination of of brand engagement. I think that, you know, having the commercial side of the, uh, of the equation is a very, very important element to this. So I hope to be able to export this. And, and we have a number of people in professional sports who are watching this very closely. It does require though, a substantial change of mindset at the league level. And the reason why we partnered first with sale GP is that sale GP was willing to allow a multi you know, we'll have up to 2,000 people in the equity ownership here. And that's a big intellectual change. An ownership that might be a, a small partnership. You know, uh, you have certain limitations right now in professional sports. Some don't allow more than 30 individuals, for example, to be in the, in the member, in the, in the, in the partnership, the ownership partnership. Uh, because there is a risk when you, when you change your participation agreement to allow a kind of a, a more, fractionalized more more you know democratized uh, ownership there's always a worry about how that really what will be the impact on for example proprietary information will will you be able to contain and control that in sale gp they didn't care as much because it's an open data platform so if some of that gets leaked out of our of our ecosystem it doesn't really matter because that data is is accessible to all teams now for example formula one you know, if we had a partnership with one of the teams and that data got leaked out to another team, that would be a catastrophic sporting disadvantage um, to occur. So you need you need the leagues to really think through how they want a large ownership entity to work. Uh, I think that you know, if I had my druthers, the next sport I would I would want to work with would be the NBA. 
because it's a global platform. I think global is a very important element. I think if you look at DAOs in general, they are kind of global-minded, which means that they really want broad participation. The NBA is, is truly a global brand. Um, it's the pinnacle brand in all of its uh, distribution platforms, meaning that, like, for example, soccer is a little bit different. You have a number of different competing, quote, you know, leagues that, that think that they're as, as good as the Premier League. Um, so the, the commercial distribution and media rights are not as clean and easy around those types of sports. So, you know, we, we look for clean commercial uh, relationships, unified passion around a global brand. Uh, but baseball, for sure, because of the data element of it, is really interesting as well. And obviously, I have a lot of experience um, working with MLB. But we know from a demand standpoint, the consumer really wants this. They want to be able to engage. They want to be able to have ownership, true ownership. And look, the, it's an interesting model, you know, what the Green Bay Packers did, but it really is not true ownership, right? It's it's an element of, of interesting fan engagement, but it really is a, ultimately a trust. Um, you know, we we're very excited about bringing the element of economic ownership to a larger group. Um, in this case, we're using a, a Reg D 506C offering. So we're limited to 2000 accredited investors. I, I can see, though, over time, an evolution where and that really is 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 a, is, a, is really a self-selected regulation, meaning that if you go more than 2,000 credit investors, you have to then register the securities and, and you have to file all your public information. And filing that is a very, very expensive task. So it would work with very large revenue um, teams, but for smaller teams, it just doesn't make sense. You, you should stay as a, as a uh, with unregistered securities and limit yourself to 2,000 owners or, or fewer. So depending on the league, and the structure would be nearly identical, whether it's a registered security or unregistered security. Um, but it, it gets down to, will the leagues um, really allow for this type of ownership model to exist? And so my, the next evolution here for us is getting this team up and running and then sitting down with the NBA, NFL, MLB, have them see what we did understand the, the, the pros and the cons because ultimately it's, it's going to be their decision of how, how they want ownership to look and feel in the next few decades. David, you mentioned some of the regulations and I guess my broad question is, is there an established regulatory framework within which DAOs operate and there's there some risk that they may change over time given kind of the emerging nature of, of this vehicle? Yeah, so and that's what really we've spent a lot of our time. A, a traditional DAO, and the reason why we're doing this hybrid structure is I come from a background of regulatory compliance. I was a CEO of a publicly traded company. So I know and live and breathe regulatory compliance. That's that's what I do, right? And DAOs are not regulated, you know, what I call a peer DAO, and they actually are a general partnership, which a lot of people in DAOs don't realize, but there's general liability. Meaning that, you know, so they're nice if you're, you know, if, if the mission is maybe to buy a real estate asset, but to buy an operating business and then exposing your ownership base to all the liabilities of an operating business <clears throat> is not tenable. You couldn't actually structure the equity properly. So we're doing this, this hybrid where inside of the DAO sits a traditional LLC that gives you 
the limited liability protection that any equity investor is going to, to demand, right? So you, so we're structuring a tokenized LLC that is a, with a DAO attached to it. So the DAO has the governance rights associated with it. And so we have a, a very unique um, hybrid um, that we believe is obviously it's regulatory compliant. And it's, you, you'll see out there some DAOs, they try to kick you know, I think the regulators in the teeth and they say, hey, we're, you know, we're outside of you. We're the exact that we're raising our hands to say we are a regulated entity we're regulated under under what we call regulation D under the securities uh, laws. And we're filing all of the, the proper protocols under that. We're creating an LLC, which gives equity investors the proper equity limited liability protection that they require to any other you know, true investment. Um, as a result, we can only limit this to an accredited investor right now. Uh, we can't open this up to a non-accredited investors. Accredited investors are those who have individual income of 200000 or more or joint income of 300000 or more or a net worth of a million dollars um, outside their principal residence. So, but that's what the, what's, that's what the current regulations allow. And we're not going to go stick a finger in that eye. We're going to embrace it and say, Given the current regulatory environment, this is the type of structure that we believe um, still opens up fandom to a new level of ownership, but doesn't in any way, shape, or form cross any regulatory path. We're not here to kind of break regulatory ground. We don't want to stay within that framework. Um, and then, you know, we'll work with regulators over time if there's, if there's, if there's a, an evolution that makes sense. But for right now, I think we can create a great product here. Um, that reaches uh, at least 2,000 accredited investors. But in addition to that, we have the membership community that's, that will not be an equity ownership. And that could be, that's unlimited. That, you know, that, that membership will be, hopefully we'll have tens of thousands of people you know, involved in that level. They're still engaged in the DAO. They will still have certain governance rights. They will certainly have access um, to the team in unique ways that we're really excited about. Um, but they won't have the the benefits of economic ownership. There's obviously been a lot said and written about the crypto winter and all of the turbulence and and disruption and downturn happening in that space. To what to what degree does any of that impact what you're doing here? Yeah, it really doesn't. You know, we're we're using Web three tools here. We're using obviously the, the near protocol. We're building our our voting and governance infrastructure on the blockchain but we're doing that for transparency and for you know it's basically a public ledger right so we're it's for transparency and for allowing people to know well this is really you know these are bona fide uh, votes that have occurred and and in an environment where you have you know 2000 people that necessarily know each other it creates a great tool for um for trust and transparency but we're not engaging in using crypto from a currency standpoint, um, our operating expenses are hard fiat dollars, right? So, <laughs> no, it isn't, we, we can't, um, no, we're going to accept uh, USDC, you know, we'll accept a digital transaction as an initial investment. Uh, that will be immediately converted into fiat currency. We're not taking any crypto risk whatsoever. So for those who are crypto native and crypto curious, who are interested in this, because we are on the blockchain, and, and so, and we do have a number of people in that community. They actually look at this as a very interesting vehicle because there's not there's there's not there's no real volatility 
you know, we call it the traditional volatility is because our token that's being issued here, which is a L1 token, um, is still, it's an equity interest in an, an actual operating, an operating business as opposed to just, you know, a, 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 digital, uh, a digital asset. So, you know, for those people that could say convert some of their digital assets into a tokenized um, LLC interest, I think there's some interest in people doing it because it's, it's actually going into a, a hard asset as opposed to just a digital asset. So the crypto renter is created clearly some noise and, it, and it's taken some of the oxygen out of the room as, as far as, you know, people wanting to learn and talk about it. Just, they're very much obsessed right now with FTX and <laughs> from a media standpoint. Um, but from a structural standpoint, um, you know, we are a use case for what a, a blockchain governed business can look like as opposed to anything with, with any real crypto risk because we're, you know, we're, our revenue comes in, in in fiat dollars and our expenses go out in fiat dollars. So we have no, no desire to, and we're not going to make this a crypto native business um, because of because of that of that dynamic. David, on a related note, we've seen over the past year a big up and then a big down in NFTs, especially in the sports space, which may be a little bit closer to your world in the sense that people are buying NFTs in part to have a collectible, but also there's a community and a sense of engagement with at least some NFT programs. How does that up and down in that market affect the way people think about your business or the way you think about it? And, and that does, there clearly is a psychological impact. So we are going to be issuing NFTs with our, our community token. And the NFT, again, we're using it as a use case. So that, that is going to be a digital proof of your membership in the community. And what a lot of people you know don't don't realize about NFTs. Ultimately, it's a smart contract in the blockchain. So there's a lots of different ways you can utilize that smart contract. And one is for authentication, verification, and the delivery of very interesting digital uh, goods and services. Um, so yeah, will, will we be creating some collectibles as part of that? Absolutely. There's some interesting video and some interesting artwork that's that's done on an annual basis. And some people, you know, ultimately may feel that that's very it has a real tangible value, a real tradable value, and, and we hope that's the case. But we're not we're not really utilizing the NFT with any type of promise that that is that's going to be a, a valuable collectible. But we are going to be doing dynamic NFTs. I'm very excited about how that actually gets put into play. So a dynamic NFT is a smart contract that's that when various either environmental or performance or data um, sets change the the character of the NFT chain. So let's say you get issued an NFT and it has a particular uh, um, artistic form. And let's say the team now starts scoring points during the season. As those points are scored, that, that NFT, the, the smart contract can automatically deliver and change the form of that NFT. And maybe the artwork changes or something occurs or additional data set is delivered to you or additional access to the communications channels are, 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 are delivered to you. And so to me, the NFT in our case is a very interesting use and delivery platform for goods and services and for authentication. Um, you know, if we ultimately have true collectible value that's created, that's great. That's fantastic. It's not, you know, what I, I hope our NFT use case is about, um, but we will definitely be creating some very unique 
you know, what we believe are, you know, for lack of a better word, um, you know, digital, digital collectibles. And I think that there's some great examples of, you know, NBA Top Shop um, has done a great job in that area. Uh, but you've seen the volumes, you know, spike and, and go up and down. So, you know, we're hoping that people see that, you know, the NFT that we issue here is really their membership. You know, it's a proof of membership that gives them a, a whole suite of services um, as opposed to just a, just, just a single digital collectible. Well, clearly a lot happening in and around uh, this new uh, uh, venture and Bernoulli Lock uh, more broadly. Uh, and we're going to be continuing to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank David Palmer for spending this time with us. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank David Palmer again for Bernoulli Locke for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to the news of the week, we had several major uh, events happen just before Christmas that are really, as I said, going to point the way uh, for the industry in these early days of the new year. And, and foremost among them, we after really two years almost of uh, waiting and anticipation, and we, we've talked about this before on the podcast, uh, National Football League finally completed its deal uh, for the new term term of NFL Sunday ticket, the uh, obviously the uh, big out-of-market game package. And after a lot of anticipation that it was going to be Apple, that it was going to be the uh, winner for these rights, turns out it's YouTube. Uh, Google-owned YouTube has prevailed uh, in a real, uh, as I said, lengthy uh, and, and protracted negotiation, but they've ultimately ended up with a seven-year deal for these rights. Uh uh, contract worth uh, as much as two and a half billion dollars a year. Uh, really big step up from the prior term with uh, DirecTV, where they were at a billion and a half a year. Um, but uh, you know, whether it be Apple or obviously now YouTube, uh, the the whole premise of this was to reimagine the product and go with a digital partner. That was the the clear goal from the outset, and the NFL has in fact done that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much the product has been reimagined in the sense that there were restrictions in terms of how much the product or package could change because the broadcast deals that had already sure. been done sort of restrict uh, the degree to which, you know, this can be so broadly available that it could include all kinds of other rights. And I think one of the challenges from what we're hearing that Apple found was they couldn't get the degree of rights or the breadth of rights that let's say they could get in the context of the MLS deal. And again, sure. that's just simply because the NFL had existing broadcast and media relationships that were in place that are very lucrative. But nevertheless, this is a great deal for the NFL. I believe it will end up being a great deal for Google, YouTube as well. Uh, but, uh, but, but certainly a, an opportunity for fans also who now maybe have an easier way of getting it than just subscribing to uh, DirecTV. In your broad point is well taken. There are some very significant guardrails that remain in place, and foremost among them is the Sunday afternoon protections uh, in local markets for CBS and Fox, and that was paramount for those networks, no pun intended, and, and really important for the NFL as well. Uh, but what I am kind of interested to see is um, – to what degree, even if sort of the core concept of the games that you get, uh, even if that sort of remains essentially as it has been, does the sales sort of strategy, the marketing change, does uh, sales change, does the pricing change? Uh, this was a fairly expensive and sort of cumbersome product to 
purchase and pay for and carried a big price tag and so on and so forth and and do they slice and dice that pricing up a little bit where you can uh more easily access a particular team or a particular week or just a uh two or three games or something of that sort and and do they carve that up a little bit and that's the kind of thing i'm really interested to see even in this sort of core construct remaining the same yeah those things could be interesting eric and then also there could be because now this is a purely streaming and digital package other kinds of enhancements that are added in terms of you know play by play betting opportunities down the road or, or other kinds of interactive content or interactive commerce so we'll see if any of that comes to pass but think about the economics for a minute there there are about i, I believe it's between a million and a half and 2 million subs of sunday ticket and they pay roughly $300 a year. So that's like $600 million a year of direct revenue. Yet the NFL got $2 billion plus for this package. And that just shows the power of Sunday Ticket to get people, consumers, to switch, let's say, from DirecTV or Fubo TV or wherever they are to YouTube TV such that it makes the economic equation worthwhile for YouTube, Google to do this deal. So it's an enormous sort of gulf or distance between the direct revenue and the ultimate rights fee, which is really a credit to that exclusivity premium and the way the NFL markets this. Well, and clearly to your point, YouTube and Google believe they can really expand the pie here that, you know, as you accurately lay out under the prior DirecTV construct, uh, this thing was really set up as a loss leader to set up broader uh, DirecTV subscriptions. And yes, there were you could get this through a streaming means, but it was you had to prove that you couldn't get a satellite dish, and there were a lot of hoops that you could go through to have this be a pure digital play from the outset. The barrier to entry from a consumer standpoint, you know, my mind goes way, way down here. And again, that's that's a key point to expanding the pie and sort of getting something closer to that two point five billion dollar number here. Yeah, that that will make uh, the the streaming uh, option will make it more accessible. But again, those guardrails are in place in some respects to not turn this into something that 10 million people subscribe to, because then you start cutting into the audience on Sundays. Uh, the the other uh, on on the broadcasters. The other thing that was striking to me about this deal is it seems to me that this is the first major foray for Google YouTube in the big sports rights acquisition space. Again, I may be forgetting something. There may be some other deal out there that uh, is not coming to mind, but we had already Apple making the big step with the MLS deal. We had uh, Amazon with the Thursday night deal. And now Google is stepping in with both feet on sports rights. And I think that's got to be good news for the entire industry that they're now a bona fide bidder for some of these rights now and going forward. Yeah, this is really a big play for them and sort of the deep end of the pool, shall we say. They've had some small things with baseball and some weekday inventory and some things, you know, sort of around the margins. And then relative to YouTube TV specifically, they've had some big sponsorship oriented things where they've had presenting rights to the World Series and the NBA Finals and such. And and sort of in turn using that to promote the availability of those broadcast channels on YouTube TV. But again, that was fundamentally a sponsorship play to have, again, a real exclusive tier one rights play here like this is. You know, we're we're into some new water here to carry the metaphor. So to yeah, speak. And it, 
Exactly. And that, and again, I think that's probably good news for people like Adam Silver and the NBA as they think about their upcoming uh, rights negotiations for their media. Probably good news for the expanding CFP uh, and, and other properties that are out there. So now I think you've got with Google, Apple and Amazon of uh, three, three bona fide additional bidders that are now going to potentially drive rights fees up even more. Now, the other interesting thing from a technical standpoint, I'm really interested to see how what happens is how they perform from a latency standpoint, because, of course, there's so much action that happens in and around the NFL from a fantasy standpoint, from a betting standpoint, and so much that is dependent on real time or very close to real time action. And Amazon heretofore has performed very well, but that's one game on a Thursday night where they can sort of put all of their technical resources you know, in, a, in a single game. You know, when you have as many as eight, nine games in a one o'clock window uh, that YouTube is all going to have to carry, how they perform um, and how that, again, then manifests itself a step further in the betting and fantasy realm, it's going to be very fascinating to see. That that will be interesting to see, Eric. And again, you know, over the long run, you'd expect that that Google will, will get it right. Maybe there'll be some glitches in the early going, maybe not. Again, there is going to be an audience difference in the case of Amazon, I believe, you know, there were, you know, 10 million plus or I, I made the first week was even close to 15 million uh, of viewers. And in the case in. of yeah. Sunday Ticket, it, yeah, in the case of Sunday Ticket, if you've got a million and a half to two million subs, again, assuming a similar subscriber base, the, there, there won't be the same level of pressure from a bandwidth and sort of simultaneous user perspective. But as you point out, there'll be multiple feeds, multiple games. And because betting is becoming an increasingly important part of the picture, uh, it will be important to, to get all that right. So a, a really uh, big deal to uh, sort of finish off 2022 and kick off 2023. Uh, another big deal that helped close out the year and one that we've also talked a lot about uh, was the sale of the NBA's Phoenix Suns and their uh, sister club, the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury. Uh, obviously a very tumultuous and, and unfortunate end to the end uh, ownership tenure of Robert Sarver and the misconduct that happened in and around that. Uh, but there is a new sheriff in town with these franchises franchises and insurance executive Madish Bia is coming in in a deal that values those two franchises combined at four billion dollars so really healthy really robust number uh and so you've got a, a lot of real uh significant ripple effects here that you've got uh the youngest majority owner uh in Ishbia coming in at just 42 years old and you've got again a very healthy number for these franchises and yes a lot of the core economics of both the nba and wnba are looking up uh but you've got a record price for those leagues and even as Phoenix is, you know, a good market and these are good franchises, you look at some of the other teams as we've discussed that are on the market, uh, commanders, nationals, angels, what have you, uh, all of those sellers have got to be very, very happy with this outcome in Phoenix. Absolutely. It sets a nice trend for the marketplace overall. I would point out, Eric, though, that, you know, some of the things you mentioned are true. Phoenix is a good market. The NBA doing well. They've got an upcoming media rights deal. But also the fact that uh, Matt could buy a majority stake but not have to buy 100% of the team also, in my opinion, impacted the valuation. So, for example, if he bought – we don't know exactly what he bought, but it's north of 50%, but it's it, it may not be north of 60 
the aggregate amount of cash required to take control of that team was probably not as much as you're going to see in some other deals. Right. And therefore, I think it made a higher valuation more tenable. In the case of the commanders, where the NFL has kind of stricter requirements about no uh, no, no private equity, the, the primary owner having to own a bigger percentage on his or her own, uh, that puts more pressure uh, on, on the valuations than, than potentially in this case. Yeah, so there that's a lot of intricacies that we're going to sort of see play out in each of these other respective cases. But again, the sort of the overall trend line, it really kind of continues to point north. And, and you know, particularly as we uh, you know, get into these early days of 2023, that there's been some, you know, better news of late, just writ large vis-a-vis the economy and some of the recent headlines, whether it be supply chain, gas prices, interest rates, what have you, uh, job, you know job data and so forth that all sort of has been lending a little bit more optimism in the market as well yeah i think and and, and that really then ultimately trickles down to uh consumers and fans showing up at ballparks that relates to some of the other sponsors and, and folks that support uh the businesses uh but, but ultimately the biggest driver for most of these leagues and teams is media rights, which we've talked about in, in various forms, including just yeah. a couple of minutes ago. Yes. And those rights continue to uh, skyrocket, despite the fact that a lot of the major media companies have really faced challenges in the last year or two in terms of getting hit on Wall Street, dealing with profitability. But they still feel like they need sports as as the fulcrum or the center of what they do in the in media and entertainment space. And that's been great news for sports. Well, and, and that just gets back to the audience numbers because there, there just is nothing else in, in media, certainly in the United States and many other parts of the world where you want to reliably bring together 15, 20 million people, obviously in the case of the Super Bowl, 100 million people, but there's, there's nothing like sports that can reliably do that. And so that, that is a fundamental underpinning to everything we're talking about here. It is. It is absolutely, Eric, especially in the U.S. What I would point out maybe as a, as a little bit of a counterbalance is in Europe, we have not seen necessarily the same level or growth of rights fees. They've grown, but not necessarily at the same rate. And therefore, yes, we've seen Chelsea and we've seen some outliers sell for a lot of money, but I'm not sure uh, we're going to see the same level of valuation growth in Europe on, on sports teams as we're seeing in the U.S. And there are other reasons for that as well. But I think we've got an interesting dynamic in the U.S. that may be somewhat different than in right. parts of the world. Well, and it sort of gets to some of the league structures as well, because there's much more of a sort of focus here in the, in the United States, North America, in terms of competitive and economic balance. And even though we've got a situation where now the New York Mets are running, you know, with a payroll exponentially bigger than the folks at the bottom end of the scale, Oakland and what have you in, in Major League Baseball, there's still overall much more of a structural focus on having a level playing field on and off the field than exists in a lot of these European and Asian entities where they're very top heavy. They, they are. And, and many in Europe and other parts of the world are, are losing money. And, right. and for the most part, if you've got a team in the big four leagues in the U S there are some exceptions, but for the most part, those teams are profitable. Uh, and so again, as we've talked about in the past, what you see happening in Europe is uh, you see them, uh, many of those teams are leagues taking money for private equity, from private equity to shore up their balance sheets, either by giving media rights or stadium rights or, or other kinds of things. So again, a different market and, and some different dynamics there. 
Well, shifting uh, focus from professional sports to college sports, we had some big news come out again just before the holidays in terms of at last the selection has been made for the new president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, obviously the governing body for college sports in the United States. the outgoing Mark Emmert, he made his plans known many months ago. And so there had been a uh, high level search going on for some time to find his successor. And that successor is now going to be Charlie Baker, the outgoing governor of Massachusetts. And a very interesting pick here because he's coming in without a sports industry background and particularly without a college sports administration uh, background. And College sports in the United States is one of those segments that recent hires, such as Brett Yormark and the in the Big Twelve, notwithstanding that there has been a real historical favoritism in terms of having the leaders in college sports come from college sports, and that is a a, a an environment where they have sort of stuck to their own in, in many respects. And this is not the, at all the case here, where Charlie Baker is coming in at a time where all of college sports is in in a massive throes of redefinition here. Uh, but the general premise is here that he's coming in with obviously this political background and particularly as a Republican in a reliably Democratic state, his ability to sort of reach across the aisle and build coalitions and do bipartisanship. These are skills that the uh, the leaders in college sports think that can be really uh, particularly uh, needed and appropriate here. Yeah, those skills of consensus building will definitely be needed. And I, you know, I'd be somewhat optimistic that uh, that Governor Baker can can do that kind of consensus building. But there are a lot of structural issues. There are challenges with NIL. There are challenges with realignment uh, up and down the list that are not going to be easy to handle. Uh, again, he doesn't have necessarily the college sports experience, but he does have that ability to bring people together and find solutions. And so hopefully that will translate to this forum. But I think it's certainly not a uh, a, a done deal that that will happen. Yeah, and it's very interesting here because he's coming in not only at the time this redefinition, but he's, you know, sort of having to, uh, you know, fix the plane while the plane is in flight here, so to speak, uh, uh, that a lot is happening and is going to need to continue to happen in real time and trying to engineer uh, reform, whether it be uh, gender equity, whether it be NIL and some of the issues you just referenced, the list goes on and on conference realignment. All these things are happening and, and really changing pretty significantly in real time all around him. And so, Obviously, you got to get your arms around all of these issues, but as new rules of the road and new these redefinitions come into place, these early days could be really bumpy because uh, the near-term impacts could end up being very disproportionately applied because you got these student-athletes coming in. By definition, they've got a very limited time in this environment, and changes may apply to a junior or a senior in a very, very different way than it would an underclassman. And again, these first couple, three years – uh, as these changes are not only uh, applied, but perhaps applied to different student athletes in very different ways, that's going to be a real dynamic he's going to have to wrestle with. Absolutely. And the other dynamic he's going to have to wrestle with is what, you know, what authority does he have versus, let's say, the power five commissioners, which right. in the lame duck uh, situation that we've seen over the past several months since Emmer announced his resignation these Power Five commissioners have really, in my view, taken on even more importance. They they right. essentially work to to re uh, 
reestablish or expand the CFP. Uh, they're, they're basically now trying to get their arms around uh, all of the NIL issues. And so I'm not sure it's going to be easy for, for Governor Baker to come in and just, even with his consensus building skills, be able to, uh, to kind of wrestle power from, from these other commissioners who have been now used to kind of wielding that power. I think it's an excellent point because you've got a Greg Sankey at the SEC or Kevin Warren at the Big Ten. The list goes on that, uh, you know, in these last 18 to 24 months, as all these things have been happening, you know, they they really in, in many respects have become the most powerful people in college sports and to sort of take any sort of step back. That's a little hard to hard to think about. Yeah, and when you think about, you know, again, I think the CFP will be the center of gravity over the next few years because those deals and and that new structure will have to be completed. Whereas March Madness, which has largely been the purview of the NCAA office, that deal is extended through 2032. So that's kind of on autopilot. A lot of the energy will be around college football and and NIL. And again, I'm I'm just not sure that the governor is going to be able to change the momentum but but again he's he's got great uh, skills and and hopefully he'll be able to have an impact so he comes in march one and uh and again this is going to be something that's really gonna as he uh comes in to, at the end of q1 here and really gets going in q2 uh that's going to be uh something to really watch here and, and then as we move towards the summer and the beginning of the next academic year in august um you know, what those initial days and weeks look like, because, uh, again, the pressure is going to be on to hit the ground running. Yeah. And, and Eric, I'd mentioned one other issue that kind of has been in the background more recently, but I think it'll come to the foreground again, which is sports betting and how college yeah. sports handles that, because you've got uh, Florida, Texas and California right now, none of which have widespread legalized sports betting that will likely change over the next few years. And with those changes, are going to be enormous commercial opportunities for college sports and college football and basketball in those markets. And and whether or not that can be managed effectively and without snafus is going to be no small, uh, small challenge. So much more to come on that front. Uh, But as we come towards the end of uh, another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a look ahead in the space and see what else is catching our eye. And particularly as we start the new year here. And Chris, I will start with you. Eric, I'm really curious to see how well the sports ad and sponsorship market holds up in Q1 of this year. We have such amazing events coming up, the Super Bowl, the CFP Championship, NBA All-Star, NHL All-Star, March Madness. Uh, Yet this year, we don't have uh, crypto uh, spending. Uh, We likely will not have the same level of sports betting spending that we had a couple of years ago from an ad perspective. So it will be really interesting to see whether these major events can still, you know, overperform uh, given a softening economy, given some of these categories that may be not as strong as they were and, and, and really overall health of the sports industry. What does it look like? Yeah, I think you make a great point there because not only uh, are we seeing a lot of turbulence in these emerging sectors, but even some of the tried and true sectors that have been key supporters of sports for a long time, such as airlines, they're going through their own issues right now. And, uh, you know, financial services and some of the issues that we referenced earlier in the podcast as well and uh, and so on and so forth, that even some of the uh, traditional incumbents, you know, may not be as solid as they once were. So. You know, given that this is a really key revenue line in the industry, uh, you raise a great point. 
and, and, and again, besides these big events, and we've talked about it a number of times, there's also all this new inventory, jersey patches, helmet patches, all, all this premium inventory that's now available. So again, really will be interesting to see how well the, uh, the ad marketplace hangs in there. And uh, we might get some uh, initial reads on some of this out at the International Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas during this first week of January. I'm, uh, I'm heading out to uh, Las Vegas, uh, and it, you know, it's a big global event, uh, one of the largest trade shows of any type in the world, and something over the last decade or so that sports increasingly has uh, made their presence known at. Uh, but this is an event that really, really got hit hard by the pandemic. Uh 2020 event just before you know full shutdown was already starting to see you know some uh, re- retreat in attendance uh, and some concern uh, based you know, in part on some of the big Asian draw that this uh, event draw, uh, generates. Uh, it was all virtual in 2021 and it was back in person in 2022, but in a very limited form with sharply reduced attendance. Uh, but this year for 2023, looking to be much more like it's been historically and you know attendance uh you know somewhere right around 100,000 which is not quite up to the 165,000ish that it was at its peak but still a much more healthy number much more uh something resembling historic norms here and so uh you know just from not only a sort of content standpoint and what emerges out of the show is something that I'll be watching but also just sort of a vibe standpoint and 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 sort of how f- people feel being at a big event like that yeah, look, Eric, I look forward to your uh, report uh, as you go through the conference and, and report back. You know, every year there is typically some theme that sticks out in terms of the sports industry, whether it's, oh, the Web3 or it's ARVR or yep. it's betting tech. or And I, I really don't know what the theme is going to be this year from from the sports tech. What What is going to kind of stand out as, as what's driving all the buzz and energy, but but will be interesting to hear from you as you go and and hopefully uh, unveil that. Well, much more to come on that front, but that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only. It does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.